Welcome to They See American Life. I'm Uma. I'm Priya. And I'm Deepti. Ahmaud Arbery, Brianna Taylor, and George Floyd. These were three people in the past few months that were unjustly killed simply because they were Black. And there have been many, many more in the past. It's been two weeks since the horrible incident that I'm sure we've all witnessed, the killing of George Floyd. And we believe that this, this was basically the last straw and it sparked a big whole worldwide protest on Black Lives Matter. Since the recording of this episode, Robert Fuller and Malcolm Harsh were found lynched in California. Authorities declared their deaths as suicides, while their families think otherwise, because the circumstances surrounding both of their deaths are very suspicious. Rayshard Brooks died while fleeing from two white police officers in Atlanta, Georgia. So today on Daisy American Life, we want to talk about Black Lives Matter and have just an open, honest conversation and discussion about this and how it's also impacting our South Asian community. We would also like to add a disclaimer that we're all not experts. We're all trying to build our own knowledge and we're all educating ourselves more about the Black Lives Matter movement. We recorded this episode because we truly believe that the time for action is now. And as a South Asian community, we can work to become better allies. We'd like to start off by just, you know, kind of talking about how we're all feeling. I can go first. I think I'm pretty amazed at what's happening right now. Like the entire world is coming together around this movement. And it's something I've never really seen before. And if I had to be super honest, I don't think I realized that there was a lot that I didn't know or that I just took for granted here. So I've been doing some, you know, self-educating and self-reflecting on this topic. It's definitely been a whirlwind of emotions for me. And from what I know now, I can't really go back, but that's okay because I think I've changed for the better. So that's just my take on it. I just want to see, like, Deepi, how are you feeling with everything that's been happening these past two weeks? So, honestly, I personally haven't educated myself prior to the brutal murder of George Floyd. I was aware about the Black Lives Movement. I was very, you know, I felt for it. I completely understood that police brutality was a thing. However, I don't think I really took the time to like fully understand the experiences that Black people have endured for so long. I don't think I fully understood the extent of systemic racism that existed within our system. And I really don't have an excuse for not educating myself about these things prior to the murder of George Floyd. But I I believe that I now have opened my eyes. I 
I am committing myself to learning and I do want to educate myself going forward and also stick up for any anti-black or racist comments I might hear from my family or peers. Priya, so how are you feeling with everything that's happening? Yeah, I think I'd like to echo both of the sentiments that Uma and Deepthi both said. I definitely also feel like I haven't been active in the past when these situations have come up. And in just the past week, I've been making a lot more effort to educate myself. And, you know, while it's been overwhelming and uncomfortable to confront my internal biases, I'm trying to do as much as I can, you know, like any way that I can get involved. And that's why, you know, we wanted to start this podcast together and have this discussion together because we're trying to find ways that we can advocate for change and, you know, continue to have these conversations and make that long-term commitment to, you know, improving the situation. And, um, you know, I'm happy to try to use whatever platform we have or um, talk within our community and make those changes. So in talking about how we wanted to make changes starting from our community as South Asians, we wanted to bring up some positive examples that we saw of South Asian allyship that inspired us and that we think can be helpful conversation starters within our community. Uh, the first example that we saw that many of you may be familiar with is of Rahul Dube in DC, who opened up his home to more than 70 protesters who needed shelter until curfew was lifted the next morning. And he brought in, you know, anybody who needed a place to stay that night. And this was just such an inspiring moment for all of us to see. Another example that we saw was the Gandhi Mahal restaurant in Minneapolis, which is owned by Bangladeshi immigrants. And it was burned down in the aftermath of protests but the owners turned the restaurant into a staging area for medics and a resting place for protesters dealing with tear gas. Another example that we saw as well was um, in the Bay Area, which is where uh, the three of us reside. And there was a group of Indian Americans who organized a silent protest in Palo Alto with more than 100 participants. The reason that I wanted to uh, particularly highlight these three examples is because it's kind of a smaller and rarer part of the bigger story around police brutality. Um, I loved this opinion piece that I had read by activist Deepa Iyer, and she wrote that, while these may be small and rare parts of the bigger story around police brutality targeting Black people in this country, for South Asians, they're meaningful and significant. These stories remind us that it's possible to build bridges to understand the systemic failures of policing in this country and to fight for justice for Black lives. Most importantly, they provide an alternative to the narrative that we often hear that South Asians and Black communities do not have common cause. So I think it's especially important to show um, our community, the South Asian community, that you know, there are people who are actually supporting this cause and it's not enough to just you know, talk about it at home. There are ways that you can actually go out and support the cause. Something that I've been seeing floating around a lot on social media is this idea of anti-racism versus non-racism. So the difference, I found this really insightful quote by Ijuma 
Oluo. And her quote says that the beauty of being anti-racist is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be an anti-racist. And anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including in yourself. And it's the only way to move forward. So a little short context on why I'm even bringing up this quote is because South Asians have actually been present in the U.S. since the 1900s, but we weren't really present in large quantities until the 1960s and 1970s. And a history on that is the Immigration Act of 1917, which was passed due to the fragmentation of the American cultural identity. They only accepted people into the country that were from European countries. And the U.S. Congress actually passed an immigration act that restricted migrants from the Asiatic Bard Zone, which included the Indian subcontinent. And Desis have also been complicit in the U.S.'s very apparent racism. I would like to bring up this interesting case from 1922. The United States versus Bhagat Singh Thind. Thind was an immigrant from Punjab who came to the U.S. in 1913 for further education. In 1918, he joined the U.S. Army and was granted citizenship in the state of Washington, only to have it quickly rescinded. He then applied for citizenship in Oregon in 1919 and received it. This was later repealed by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, which led to the landmark 1922 United States versus Bhagat Singh Thind Supreme Court case. Throughout the case, Thind claimed that people of South Asian descent were Caucasian under the Indo-European theory that we're of Aryan blood. He further argued that by being a high caste of full Indian blood, he was a Caucasian according to anthropological definitions. The verdict Thind received was that he was not Caucasian in the common understanding. As a result, the United States Supreme Court decided that no person of Indian origin and we're calling Indian Indian here because the subcontinent was not yet divided. In 1923, up to 50 Indian Americans actually had their citizenship revoked as a consequence of the thinned ruling, including the first person to get U.S. citizenship from the Indian subcontinent, a man named A.K. Mazumder. We can see that thinned was sort of just wanting U.S. citizenship, but it's really interesting to me to see the racism that took place on both sides. Finn's lawyers claimed that he had a revulsion to marrying an Indian woman of the lower races. The United States claimed that Indians were not white, and yet we like to, even to this day, stick to the idea that we're superior to other minority groups and essentially white adjacent when white governments have continually excluded us. It's the civil rights movement that actually paved the way for legal immigration of Desi Americans and Asian Americans. And you might be hearing this a lot. The rest of us have also seen this a lot on social media. Yeah, I think that's a point that came up many times on social media, but it's only been covered from a high level. Yeah, yeah. So I looked into this The history of Black Americans is no secret. 
They were forcibly taken from their home countries during the transatlantic slave trade. Over time, they were denied basic human rights that were promised to them under the U.S. Constitution. The blatant disregard for the lack of human dignity of black Americans still hasn't been given to them. We pledge of allegiance to the flag of America, and we supposedly ask for liberty and justice for all, but black Americans haven't been given that basic human dignity, that basic liberty and justice for all. This actually wasn't even confronted until the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. The Civil Rights and Voting Act of 1964 finally desegregated schools and ended employment discrimination. And this emphasis on human rights gained world attention and brought into focus America's racist exclusion of non-white immigrants. And because of this movement, activists in the U.S sought to change the discriminatory laws that were restricting the influx of darker-skinned and non-white people into the United States. The Immigration Act of 1965 prohibited discrimination on the basis of race, sex, nationality, place of birth, or place of residence in the United States government's decisions to issue immigrant visas. Instead, the law established a new system preference based on professional status and family reunification. This law effectively created the model minority myth that gave South Asians privilege. We were able to attain financial success given to us by the privilege that we were highly skilled majority white-collar workers. That's a great uh, historical recap, Lucy. The whole thing about uh, Bhagat Singh Bind, um never really knew about that, so that was very, very interesting. Yeah, I'd heard yeah. from a couple of people that, like, this is something that we should take ownership over in terms of, like, the, the racism that was happening on both sides, and even though he was trying to help, you know, um, uh, South Asians immigrate, it still wasn't done in the right well, way. I don't think... I don't know because he was basically trying to pass himself off as white. And yeah, exactly. So we he have had, to like all these notions. To, yes, and That's he also had I mean. these notions about um, superiority based on caste and stuff. So yeah. that seems kind of a little problematic. But I feel like this is like an episode for another day. Yeah, I can go on and on about it. But that was very interesting learning about that. Yeah. So in addition to the historical context that we just talked about, we wanted to briefly acknowledge some issues within our own community that lead to anti-Blackness and white adjacence. So some of the things we've been seeing online and that we've been discussing amongst our community are the South Asian tendency to center whiteness and um, colorism. This can include having prejudice against dark skin a lot of people have been talking about like celebrities and in media um, focusing on fair is beautiful and dark skin is considered to be inferior and you know we really need to work against dismantling that mindset i agree uh that was actually one interesting thing that i saw like as you know days went by like on instagrams i've seen some posts and like to be honest i think like whiteness and colorism always been there it's always been existing yeah but i think like with everything that's happening i think it's just pushing like pushing these problems out in our community too 
Yeah, it's definitely bringing things up that we may not have talked about as much, but now we're finding it much more important to call people out on it. Um, another way that we sometimes whitewash our own culture is like we might change the way we pronounce our names or the way that we dress. Like we may feel ashamed to, you know, wear certain things. And um, this is all kind of in the name of being white adjacent and potentially benefiting from the white privilege. So I think dismantling that mindset in our own community can help us accept, um, you know, other aspects of other cultures as well as the black community, which is what we're focusing on now. I have heard people, you know, utilize the N-word in the way that Black Americans have. They've taken back what is a racial slur and basically mm -hmm. empowered themselves with it. Right. But I have heard other South Asian Americans use it in that context, and it's really not okay because that's something they've taken ownership of and they've like empowered themselves with whereas to anyone else using that word it is still a racial slur at the end of the day it was used in a very negative way against other black people of color like throughout history yeah I could totally see that I could totally see how we're appropriating uh, black culture in this way I think now, if I think back to it, I've probably seen some um, people in our community use that word too. So I think if you want to fix, you know, the fundamental racism problems that we're expressing, um, that should probably be the first rule. Yeah, and there's also this harmful stereotype that Black people are criminals, in particular, we hear this in our community. Uh, when in fact they've been put into the situation due to the social construct of whiteness, um, a system that's actually benefited us as South Asians because as Deepthi mentioned before, the model minority myth exists. And because of that, you know, we have to again work to dismantle the stereotypes and yeah, we can confront, we should be confronting our own internal biases and the way that we feel when we're going out into the world. Like, if we see a Black person, how does that make us feel? Anti-racism is, like, it's a part of us, you know? It's kind of getting uncomfortable with the things we might have said or done in the past that have perpetuated racism, whether it's out, like, I know a lot of us say we're not racist. We, like, deny being racist. We... I mean, I probably was like, I mean no harm towards anyone, but I mean, we all say things, but if we're feeling things, that's also not okay, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the internal biases can sometimes be even more harmful. So another thing we saw was um, a lot of activism, activism from our friends and family, um, particularly with our peers of the same age group. I feel like most of us are kind of on the same page, more or less. But you know, when it comes to our parents and older generations, I'm actually not really sure where everything fits in. Um, it was pretty interesting because um, on our survey with of our peers we actually uh, found out that 53% of our friends think that parents and family don't understand systematic racism. So that's a lot, that's like half of us. 
who feel like our parents don't understand this concept. And also 66% of us basically said that our family didn't think it was important to get involved with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, um, I, I feel like we should focus on this and we should work on this and improve as a community. And personally, like I've had some very tough conversations with my family, uh, my sister especially, um, actually called me out um, for getting, you know, Black Lives Matters movement mixed up with some other issues and other personal uh, opinions that I was harboring. And I'm not going to lie, like those conversations were actually pretty uncomfortable because no one wants to be called out, right? So it was not like easy to have. But I think, you know, um, I took a step back and I just thought about this from a different perspective, educated myself that conversations could be hard. You know, we need to kind of like normalize these difficult conversations with family members. That's the only way we can move forward. So my parents are pretty liberal leaning. And even though they're liberal leaning, like they voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries. They didn't really understand what it meant in terms of police brutality towards black people. Like, uh, they were like, people should suffer the consequences. You can't say, even if someone does something wrong, they can't suffer the consequences just because of their race. And I had to explain to them, no, that's really wrong thinking because white people are statistically, you know, less policed than black people. And white people receive less of a sentence for the same exact crimes that black people do and then they got it they were like oh wow like that's not fair like what the hell and they understood the protest from the start but this was the point they were kind of stuck on and once I explained it to them they understood it yeah I think I've also been hearing a couple of conversations around like looting versus protesting and I think that's important to talk about that harmful narrative because the looters are not necessarily the same as the protesters and vice versa and that's I think been coming up a lot especially in the South Asian community so you know it's been one of my conversations that I've had with my family is that you know a lot of times it's the escalation of a peaceful protest by you know police um, instigating the violence a lot of times and I think that's important to keep bringing up like what you see on the news is not necessarily what's actually happening in real life yeah yeah I actually had a very heated discussion with a friend around our age about the looting versus protesting narrative and basically their concerns were were similar they were like sort of like why why can't these people just protest peacefully i've had friends who have gone and they protested peacefully there are small businesses getting affected and it's sort of even if the protesters are looting even if they are rioting we can't really be here and judge that there are years of racism that we have willfully ignored. And I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar put it well in his LA Times article. He really basically summarized it that if you, if you feel like a building is burning 
and you're getting offended by that that's how it's been for a black person their entire lives that they're breathing mm -hmm. in smoke that they're really suffering and that was really powerful for me like whether or not it's the looters who are the looters were part of the protesting like we can't really be here and judge that safely from our homes we need to realize that this is a war that black people have been fighting their entire lives and going back to the whole comment about looting i just want to say one thing is that just you know take news media with a grain of salt because honestly um things can be angled in a different way to make it seem that it's unsafe or it's not reliable i believe in the social media movement and am you know ingesting news through social media so kind of just be open-minded because not everything you hear not every like um statement you hear is the actual truth a lot of the protests i think have been pretty peaceful at least in San Francisco. But looting is kind of like i feel like a distraction it's like a distraction yeah definitely to like yeah to like that fundamental problem we're facing here so like people just try to focus so another thing is that almost half of you said that your family doesn't know what systemic racism is. I think this is a very fundamental concept to really try and understand, and it's not that easy. So I'm going to try to go over a brief definition of it today. Basically, systemic racism is a form of racism expressed in the practice of social and political institutions. So this means you experience discrimination in areas regarding income, employment, housing, healthcare, education, basically all these areas, right, that are important and make up a person's life. You can think of it as the odds are basically stacked against you if you're from a minority group. And in this case, basically if you're black. And it's at a very large scale. This discrimination is happening at a large scale and pulling a set of people down. So it's deeply ingrained in our history and it's very subtle. It's like it's there, but you can't really see it. If you blink, you might even miss it. Um, you might not even recognize it. So I think it's very important for people to know, you know, and understand what systemic racism is. Yeah, yeah, I think I always, I didn't really know that there was an actual word for systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I've always it. heard of, like, inner city. There was always, like, these weird Hollywood movies about come-up stories and how people were from the inner city and they made yeah. it. Yeah, it was, like, that's the context I've always heard it in. But this really does go back to the whole model minority myth, right? Like we came here on the basis of educational attainment when black people have been disadvantaged for their entire lives and their entire mm -hmm. history, really. Despite these movies and programs existing, like there's still not enough out there. Mm -hmm. There needs to be more. I think uh, just an important point I wanted to tackle, like add on to that was, um, you know, I'd been hearing from 
posts that I've been reading that when we do talk about this system that exists, that it's important to not just think of it as like an amorphous blob. It's like the system and it was actually created by white people and that it's white centering and that mm -hmm. we did, you know, as our community happened to benefit from it, but not all communities are meant to benefit from it. So just wanted to right. add that. And that is like basically what happened with the US too, right? They were basically on a PR campaign after the civil rights movement. And they basically wanted to deny the fact that they weren't giving non-white people the, you know, the advantages that white people have had for so long. And that's why they brought us over even, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting. I never thought of it as a PR campaign. But yeah, it's, um, it is like to make them look good. And it was in quotas too, right? They were only bringing over like a certain number of people. Yeah. I thought that um, another reason they wanted people to come over is because there was like a disparity in um, job skill sets. I don't know. That's how my parents came to America is because they needed some, they needed computer programmers. That's how my parents came as well, but I mean, I mean, like. So that's all a sham. So that's all, that's all like fake, guys. Okay. I just realized that now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was just to. Uh, it was a PR campaign. <laughs> basically. Great. They didn't, didn't need our, they didn't need us, our nerds. They didn't need us. Yeah. We, we, yeah. They only wanted the best of us. You know, I think that's interesting. Like they didn't want like South Asians or other Asian immigrants who were not educated because that's also a form of discrimination. They only wanted the mm. best people. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds really shitty hearing that. It is shitty. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is shitty. Yep. It's uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. So we so, kind of wanted to talk about like the actions we as South Asians could take to be better allies. I think, like, one is to safely attend a protest. A lot of protests don't really have organizers that can deal with escalations and to potentially choose to go to, like, research the protest you're going to and research the organizers and make sure they have experience with dealing with de-escalations in case the cops or military does show up. And... The unfortunate thing that we're, we're hearing is that not many South Asians attend protests currently, and we're not judging. I mean, a lot of us live with family, they, we live with parents that might not even be against the movement, but might worry for our safety after like hearing and reading the news. And it's also, we're also in the midst of a pandemic. So it's totally okay if you can't attend a protest due to your own fears of, you know, coronavirus or other medical reasons. I would think there's also other things to do other than protesting. Yeah, so another thing you can do um, if you're not able to protest is you can basically put your money where your mouth is. Um, a lot of South Asian American families make, um, a lot of South Asian American families have an average higher household income than just the average American household. Um, you know, due to our higher education attainment, 
and the success that a lot of us have achieved after coming to America. So, you know, there, I think we have a duty, you know, if it's within our means to donate to the causes that we support. And um, if you're not, you know, interested in a particular organization, then you can support a minority owned business. So a lot of uh, South Asians in particular, uh, we tend to work in technology companies and large companies are matching corporate donations. So that's a great way to make your donation go even further. I know a lot of people are worried about, you know, oh, my dollar is not going to go very far if I donate to an organization. And another thing is if your company isn't matching donations and if they haven't made a statement of support yet with tangible actions on how they're going to support the cause, then we encourage you to get in touch with your HR department and ask them what they're going to do to commit to the cause. There are so many different organizations that you can donate to, and um, we you know, encourage you to research and find causes that you support and that you believe in. And we will also share a list of organizations that uh, we think could be good options if you're looking for something. Another action that you can take right away is you can sign petitions uh, to support the arrest of the officers who have still not been incarcerated for the many murders that have taken place in the past year and even in past years. A lot of people have been uh, reopening cases and if you're interested you can definitely you know, add your support to those petitions. And another action you can take is to contact your local representatives. So there are so many ways you can do that. Uh, there's easy text messages you can just send. It takes less than two minutes to add your name. Um, you can also call or email your representatives. And a very helpful thing that we've been seeing on social media is people have been putting together email templates. And so easy, you just have to enter in your name and your location if you want to. I spoke, I spoke with a friend who used to work for uh, the California governor. She was telling me that elected officials are required to document every single communication, uh, whether it's a text or a phone call or an email. So anything you can do, even if you call multiple times, it will be counted and those issues will be brought up um, in the next meetings with those officials. So I think this is a really important step to take that you know may not you may not feel like it's important, but it definitely makes a difference. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up, Priya, because I actually, like, always, like, thought, am I being heard? Like, will it, does it even make a difference? Like, what's the point of me, like, you know, taking effort out of my day to do that when it might just, you know, mm -hmm. like, yeah, end up in someone's, inbox. yeah, <laughs> filing yeah, cabinet. Same. Yeah, same here. I actually did not know that. So now that I do know, I'm going to basically send a bunch of emails <laughs> to everyone. Yeah, and we'll link to some sample scripts that you can use and email templates as well. We're planning to have a massive list of resources that we'll share with all of you. Cool. And um, another way you can get involved and take some good action is by basically educating yourself. Um, in our survey, we saw that over 50% um, of our peers were overwhelmed with the resources and the information. And I personally can empathize with that. I get it. One thing to do is taking a break from Instagram and social media. 
I think it's a very good thing to do. There's only so much information we can absorb before our brains go kaput, basically. But I strongly encourage people to not stop educating themselves. There is so much to learn and it'll only help you become, you know, more informed. And for the 20% of peers who said they face challenges in not having resources to educate themselves with, I can maybe share with you what helped me get more information and was actually pretty transformative. So the first thing I would like to say is I really highly recommend watching this documentary on Netflix called The 13th. It's two hours long and it just does an amazing job exploring the history of slavery and racism post-Civil War. It talks about mass incarceration happening in the U.S. and how systemic racism basically fuels that. And um, I think this is just very important because we see a lot of information about police brutality against Black people. And we may have some biases ourselves on like crimes and you may have bias, internal biases about, you know, Black people and the crime rates. But I think that after watching this documentary, it might change your mind on it. I kind of freakishly compare this to being if I was like in the movie The Matrix, because like after watching it, like a lot of things were kind of like revealed to me and I just can't go back anymore. So I highly, highly recommend watching that. It's very relevant to what's going on today. Yeah, so if you want something, you know, very nice and lighthearted and uplifting, I would definitely recommend watching Obama's town hall. Just any video, including Obama and Michelle, is just very, it, it's, it's very nice. Like, whenever I feel down, I go ahead and... It's very comforting, and I miss Obama. Exactly. It's like having, like, a nice, warm cup of hot chocolate. Yeah, I miss Obama, too. I remember <laughs> texting you guys and a couple of other friends, like, that I was watching this town hall, and I was like, I miss him! Yeah, <laughs> yeah oh my god. Same here. Um, I wish yeah. Michelle would become VP, but we'll see what happens. Oh my God, that would be the dream. And, um, you know, if you want a great wake up call and a shot of adrenaline and energy, I would recommend watching Hassan Minaj's video. It's an 11 minute video, but boy, that, that was great. It was so impactful. Um, I just basically pull it up and show it to everyone I know. I think the first thing I did after watching it was basically text my siblings and make sure they show it to my parents. So that's also a great video to watch. Yeah, and I appreciated just how angry he was in that video. I think, you know, mm -hmm. that's like the needed energy that we need for this to actually continue. Yeah, yeah. We did ask several people about whether they think that this would continue after the fact that people would remember this movement after it's not trending news like it's positive they were basically hopeful you know i think we're all hoping hopeful. that this makes lasting change but i think that comes from ourselves right we are the ones who have to continue the change i think it's also important to have continued conversations with our friends and families to you know basically keep talking about the Black Lives Matter movement because we can't expect this to get solved overnight. It probably won't based on how divided the nation is at this very moment. I think even in our survey, we're talking about the, one of the challenges is just bringing up these topics with our families and 
how are we, you know, not going to get into an intense debate with them? So I think, first of all, coming at, uh, coming at this conversation from a place of discussion and not attacking the other person is very important. Uh, using language that they can relate to, like whether that means you actually have to translate that into the language that your family speaks or um, using a way that appeals to them. I've seen examples of people using like spirituality and religion to um, relate to their parents or if somebody is highly educated and they believe more in statistics, then you can bring that into the conversation. So doing a little bit of that work and deciding if it's important to you, I think is part of this process as well. Yeah, yeah, that and it's definitely a more empathetic way of, you know, trying to get them to understand the Black Lives Matter movement, especially because South Asians are making up more and more of the voter base in the United States, like more and more of us are becoming citizens of the United States. And it's important we vote for the elected officials that have everyone's best interests at heart. And I think humanity is one of the best interests out there. Definitely. Um, And, you know, um, there's like a lot that's going on right now. And I'm sure a lot of people are going through a lot of emotions. Uh, The way I see it is a lot of people are hurting right now. Um, But it might be important. It might be good for us to realize that we should keep the focus on uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and make sure we give a voice and we give some space to really hear out these people and to kind of like hear out what they've been going through for a very, very long time. Yeah, and I think it's also important to differentiate from hearing out when they're speaking versus asking them what Mm -hmm. we can do to help. We shouldn't be asking them. We shouldn't be asking Exactly. It's not their responsibility to be telling us things. I think there should be a responsibility on ourselves too to educate and stuff. Completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. There's no need to have a Black person live through their trauma over and over again. We are going to commit ourselves to doing the work long term, and we would like to ask you guys to also join us in committing yourselves to doing the work long term. Allyship is working towards becoming a better ally by educating ourselves. And not all of us are going to become activists in one day or one week or one month or one year, but it's the continued effort towards allyship that can build South Asian support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah, and as we learn more, um, we hope to continue covering related topics in future episodes and, you know, keep getting new perspectives on this because it is an ongoing conversation. Um, As we mentioned, we will be sharing a document with all the links to all the things that we've mentioned in this episode, as well as resources that some of you have shared with us. Um, There's also some great Instagram accounts that um, we'd recommend following, so that'll also be on this doc as well as in links in the description. Um, You can find all these resources and reach us on our social media. 
which is they see American Pod on Instagram and Twitter. They see the American Life on Facebook. And if you have any other thoughts you want to share with us, feel free to email us at theyseeamericanlife at gmail.com. And thanks for listening.